0: Uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, here we are again on Friday. It's nice to be with you all, even if it has to be this way. Uh, so many people from all over the world. It's uh, wonderful to, that you take the time and trouble and interest to join me in these. So today, I was going to talk, the title was Why Deep Metagenomic sequencing, the quote virome and the quote viral composition of the human genome is a threat to your health. Uh, Obviously, some of this is a kind of uh, follow up to last week's um, talk. The first thing I, I just happened to hit me a few minutes ago. When I read over the title of this, that uh, I must admit, I probably shouldn't admit it, but I will, that I actually never heard of deep metagenomic sequencing probably until maybe three, four months ago. I don't remember ever reading the word. So (laughs) obviously, I can't claim to be an expert on what deep metagenomic sequencing is. I hope I don't get anything too wrong, but I can't promise that every single word and sentence will be uh, not have to be changed slightly at some point. But I do trust that I will at least get the gist of it right enough so that it may be worthwhile or hopefully will be worthwhile. So that's why I decided to do it, and partly because uh, this paper I saw annoyed me, so I kind of couldn't help myself. Um, As far as any um, announcements, uh, next week, at least in the United States, I know a lot of people aren't from the United States who are listening, um, is Thanksgiving week. So we are not going to do a webinar next Friday. So instead, I'm going to do an hour question and answer, maybe a little bit of an intro. I don't know yet. On Tuesday, next Tuesday, the 23rd, at the same time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, I think that's going to be just for Subscribestar people. So if you really want to uh, watch and you're not a member of Subscribestar, that's a good time to sign up. Um, the next thing is we, we have raised something like $16,000. Um, I say we raised, but you contributed. We helped a little bit, but it's really the amazing generosity of all of our friends and listeners and supporters. Um, and I couldn't help but think, uh, if you try to add up the number, the amount of dollars that has been spent on virology infrastructure research etc you know over the last say 50 years Uh, of course i have no idea what the number is but my guess it's either in the high hundreds of billions of dollars or maybe more anyways it's a whole lot of money and so far uh we have raised Uh, $41,000 of which we've used, uh, we haven't, it hasn't all been applied yet. So essentially, let's say it took $40,000 to to disprove virology. And it took $500 billion to do experiments, none of which uh, could prove that it was actually accurate that just goes to show that it's just i don't know what it goes to show but it goes to show something that there's something really not right about this it should take at least a billion dollars to disprove it but not 40,000 that you know some otherwise wealthy people could come up with themselves anyways uh the third thing is I just finished a part two of the podcast interview with our friend Tommy John, and I would say there was no doubt this was probably the most fun interview that I've ever done, and maybe the most interesting. And I believe we're gonna we're going to release it next week. And so, if anybody, uh, yeah, everybody should watch it the only thing I'll give you a preview is he made me promise that I would watch a movie called The Karate Kid, uh, which I don't even know that I've heard of. And he said that that explains all of this. So that was my homework, not doing these torturous exercises, which, by the way, I am doing and I go into that in the podcast. So I'll let you watch the podcast And we take it to the next level of, of, yeah, it's just really fun. Everybody should watch it. Okay. With that, what in the heck is deep metagenomic sequencing and why is it a threat to your health? Um, I have, now that I'm an expert, I can share my screen. And here it is. Metagenomic sequencing. Um, it's also called deep metagenomic, metagenomic sequencing. Uh, meta, I think, usually means around. So deep around the genome sequencing. So uh, what is that? So the paper that set me off was from a journal called Quantitative Biology, which is an interesting name for a journal, since biology is not quantitative, <laughs> but anyways, uh, and it was published not so long ago, March 2020, looks like a mixture of um, you know Western Nathans and Jeds with Ryans, with Some Asian people, not sure from where. And the title is Identifying Viruses from Metagenomic Data Using Deep Learning. So, essentially, what they're talking about is we all have heard about how they come up with the sequence uh, that to claim they have sequenced the entire genome of such and such a virus. And it basically goes uh, something like this. I know you've heard this all, but you take unpurified stuff. I sound like I'm on a broken record here. You do this culture, we all know what that is. Uh, The culture breaks down into all these pieces and the genetic material that's in the results of the breakdown of the culture obviously came from many different sources. It came from the human being, if you're doing a human sample, it came from the bacteria that live in your lungs or the human being they took the sample from. There's fungus, and there's all kinds of other uh, cellular debris in that mixture. They then uh, added it to fetal calf serum and monkey kidney cells. So now we have a whole nother line of breakdown products. And then they start chopping that up into little pieces. They discard the ones that they don't want, either DNA if they're looking for an RNA virus, or RNA if they're looking for a DNA virus. Uh, They discard the ones that they say are from humans or microbes, even though uh, truth be told, there's no way of actually distinguishing between the two. And then they start amplifying them with the PCR process because you can't find these little pieces until you amplify them. Amplify is just a fancy word for doubling them or a not fancy word for making more of them. And then once you've got a whole bunch of sequences, you start piecing them together like letters or words and you try to make paragraphs and chapters and books out of those little pieces. So that's, uh, that's the sort sort of normal, uh, what's called unbiased, which is not unbiased at all because you need to tell it what you're looking for. Otherwise you, the rule of, of the world is you can't make something, uh, That's accurate rendition of anything out of little pieces, uh, unless you've seen an example of the thing you're trying to make. You can't make the, you can't reproduce a book with the exact letters and words and paragraphs and sentence unless you know the book, and then you could take the little words and, and letters and make them into the book. If you don't have the book, you can't do it. So that's why it's not unbiased. And um, unbiased de novo, meaning a new, so they're doing this uh, for a new virus, uh, unbiased de novo sequencing. So in metagenomic or deep metagenomic sequence, what they're doing is getting rid of the culture part. And so they just start with the sample Like the lung fluid. And then they essentially do a deep amplification. That's where the word deep comes in. Deep meaning they put, I believe, the entire brew through 45 cycles, or at least uh, the sequences they're looking for. That's probably not the entire brew, the sequences they're looking for through 45 cycles. And then they try to piece those together to see what they have. So that's what deep metagenomic sequencing is. So let's look at some of the uh, background of this. First thing, the recent development of metagenomic sequencing makes it possible to massively sequence microbial genomes, including viral genomes, Without the need for laboratory culture, existing reference-based and gene homology-based methods are not efficient in identifying unknown viruses or short viral sequences from metagenomic data. In other words, they want to do away entirely with this whole business of taking the snot and growing it in a culture, even though... That they claim is the only way you can prove the existence of a virus and prove that it causes disease. That's obviously too messy and too time t- takes too much time, and you have to kill a bunch of fetuses and you know mon- keep monkey cells growing forever. And so they don't want to do that. They want to do with the whole do away with the whole thing and just sequence. In other words find what uh, genetic sequences, what little pieces of genetic material are in the original sample. And then they're saying the reason we came up with this deep learning technique is the existing ways of doing this are not efficient in identifying unknown viruses, which means I believe that if you don't know what virus you're looking for, you can't find it with the current deep metagenomic techniques. So they want to find a new technique, will which will find unknown viruses without having to put a template in there. Which is now two steps bizarre because they don't even tell they don't even have a template. They just start sequencing and amplifying whatever's in there, and then somehow they're gonna come up with the new virus. So what do they do? Well, here we developed a reference-free, fee- and alignment-free machine learning method called v- VIRFinder for identifying I- viral sequences in metagenomic data using deep learning. In other words, they're not even anymore going to compare it to previously and fraudulently created sequences. They're not going to create it uh, any sort of, uh, compare it to any sort of previously aligned and fraudulent sequences. They're just going to identify sequences by putting in primers and amplifying the whole thing or whatever they want and seeing what they get. So this is like seeing what we get, uh, we're gonna amplify whatever we want or maybe the whole thing and see what sequences are in there. So they did this and they here's what they said. They applying veerfinder to real human gut metagenomic samples we identified 51,138 viral sequences belonging to 175 bins in patients with colorectal cancer. 10 bins were found associated with the cancer status, suggesting viruses may play a role in colorectal cancer. So what are they talking about here? So they took a bunch of people uh, and took samples, presumably stool samples. Some of them had colorectal sam- uh, cancer. Uh, they started sequencing these and looking for these sequences, they found initially 51,000 different viral sequences. They belonged to 175 different bins in patient. that's categories and 10 of these categories or so-called viruses were found more in people with cancer status and since these new sequences are now being called viruses that's the important point here these little pieces of genetic material which you have no idea and i can't emphasize that enough you have no idea where they whether these sequences came from the person, right? Their their uh, their uh, their um, <clears throat> large intestine, their colon, the millions, billions of bacteria in there, the billions of fungus, and anything else, food particles, whatever else that has genetic material. You have no idea whether these are actually. These genetic pieces are from which one of those. But if they're, uh, for whatever reason, they want to say these ones are viruses, they can find certain sequences which are found more often in people with colorectal cancer. They can make those into the genome representing a virus. Therefore, viruses play a role in the etiology of colorectal cancer. The conclusion of the article, powered by deep learning and high-throughput sequencing metagenomic data, DeepVirFinder significantly improved the accuracy of viral identification and will assist the study of viruses in the era of metagenomics. In other words, we found a lot more of these viruses because we found a lot more of these sequences. We have no idea where these sequences' origin is. We're going to call them viruses. We're going to say that viruses, therefore, are at least associated, and the next step, they will be said to be causative of colorectal cancer. Therefore, you will obviously, obviously, need a vaccine for colorectal cancer because these viruses, which are now associated, the same thing happened with SARS-CoV-2. They said in the beginning it was associated and then they changed it to causative with no additional information. And so you will be able to find sequences in Alzheimer's, ADD, anxiety, runny nose, uh, Emphysema, heart disease, colorectal cancer, on and on and on, because you will always find sequences and increased of certain type of sequences when the tissue is breaking down. Obviously, these are viruses. Obviously, the only way to deal with this is to give vaccines. So this sets the stage for TENS, SCORES, HUNDREDS, AND EVEN THOUSANDS OF DIFFERENT RNA AND OTHER TYPES OF VACCINES TO COMBAT THE NEW FINDING OF THE VIRUSES WHICH HAVE BEEN FOUND WITH DEEP METAGENOMIC SEQUENCING. NOW, JUST TO MAKE IT ADD A LITTLE uh, MORE FLAVOR TO THIS. In addition, in bin seven, so the bins are one of the viruses with a negative coefficient, whatever in the regression model contains sequences similar to, believe it or not, CRS phage. Remember, phage or phage is the word for virus. So what they found is this is consistent with the fact that CRS phage, CRS virus, is a highly abundant virus in the healthy gut. (laughs) I mean, you can't really make this stuff up. Who would have thought that the most abundant virus or a highly abundant virus in our healthy gut has the illustrious name of ass virus? But it does. And... I think, finally, another interesting one, DeepVirFinder is designed for identifying prokaryotic viruses in metagenomics, which is a mixture of genomes from prokaryotic cells and prokaryotic viruses. We note that some metagenomic samples may contain contamination of sequences from host eukaryotic genomes, such as the human genome. You think... So, we note that some of these samples, which we're calling viruses, by the way, may be contaminated with sequence from such a thing as maybe you. Users who have concerns of eukaryotic contamination should first filter out eukaryotic host sequences by mapping the reads to host reference genomes before applying deep VIR finder. Now the problem is there is no difference between eukaryotic, in other words, your sequences and the microbe sequences. They're all found in both, so this is total nonsense. You cannot get rid of them, except or map them, or because they're basically the some from the same source, but. As Deep VirFinder may potentially misidentify these eukaryotic sequences as viral, you think? In other words, VirFinder might say, "Oh, by the way, uh, that that virus there turns out to be you." But that's because our eukaryotic sequences were not included in our training data set. For more complicated reference cases where host genomes are not available forget about that Uh, in other words we couldn't train anybody on this probably because there is no way to know whether the sequences came from you or the so-called virus and it's just another way of saying the virus doesn't exist it's just you breaking down and where this is going to lead is this is going to say Here are all the viruses that make up our virome. The virome is a nonsense. It's just pieces of genetic material that have been deep sequenced like this, uh, and nobody knows where they came from. And then they're going to say, well, 46% of your genome is actually viruses, which is nonsense because... What they're looking at is just sequencing whatever's there. They have no idea, as they say, we may potentially misidentify these eukaryotic sequences as viral because there is no technique in the world that anybody can distinguish a virus from you. The sequences all come from you and the whole thing is going to lead to the identification of more and more viruses found in association with every single condition that we have, which is then going to go from association to causation, which is then going to go from causation to obviously the treatment for preventing Alzheimer's because we found six different viruses, uh, meaning genetic sequences in some of the people who are breaking down because they're being poisoned. And so their brain is breaking down into sequences. Those we now call viruses because we don't need any culture or any of that stuff. We just need deep learning with deep metagenomic sequencing. And then we give you a vaccine with aluminum in it to help with your Alzheimer's. And don't bother us if something goes wrong. That, my friends, is a threat to everybody. All right. (laughs) Any questions? All right, here's the questions. So chloroquine and ivermectin seem to be the most effective treatments, effective treatments for what I may ask. Nobody has any definition of what the what is. And so how can you possibly say they're effective treatments? They're both antiparasitic. This leads me to the possibility. This is a parasite. I mean, we, we went over this and Andy went over the whole thing, uh, I am not convinced there's an it out there that is successfully treated by either one of those. Obviously, I'm not treating people, so I don't know for sure, um, but I'm only going by what the solid information, I'm not saying that either one of those and budesimide I mean, what we have here is a, a some stimulus for some people to have... Uh, an inflammatory response, and I wouldn't be surprised, well, chloroquine is an anti-inflammatory, budesimide is an anti-inflammatory, prednisone is an anti-inflammatory. I can imagine uh, that they would uh, mitigate the symptoms. My guess is if we look closely enough, we would find that ivermectin probably is an anti-inflammatory or has some similar effect as is vitamin C, as is detoxifying, as is Strephanthus, and a lot of other things. And so uh, I hesitate to recommend otherwise toxic drugs. Uh, For hypothyroidism, I stopped the armor like three months ago and started taking the thyroid natural glandular what should I expect in regards to my thyroid levels? The, the first thing I would say is uh, it's, it's better to not expect anything. And, and that goes for just about everything in life. It's a much more efficient way to live to just see what happens and then adjust. Uh, having said that, it is likely that the TSH levels will go up and the T3 and T4 will go down. That doesn't necessarily mean anything, uh, so I would go by how you feel and how you do and uh, see if you can get your thyroid to come back to life. A couple of weeks ago, I asked about NAC, which I thought referred to N-acetylcholine, but I realized it refers to N-acetylcysteine. That's correct. A supplement for low acetylcholine levels related to cognitive issues was recommended to me for my husband, who's experiencing worsening memory and information processing abilities. What can you share about this? Um, If I was to say, what is the etiology of Uh, memory problems let's go back to this just the basic level I must admit I go back to a quote it's not well maybe not a quote let's call it a paraphrase or something at least I believe I heard from one of my favorite people a guy named Mark Twain who I've uh, referenced here before Apparently, he had an amazing memory even when he was like in his late 70s or 80s or something like that. And at one point, he was asked, uh, Why does he have such a good memory? And I don't know if anybody knows the answer to that, but his answer was, I believe, because I never tell a lie. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Uh, We have these. Uh, nerves which make connections and they're much more flexible and plastic not plastic in the sense of like plastic bag but they have more plasticity meaning more ability to change as does everything including DNA than we possibly imagine but it seems Uh, accurate to say that the things that you think and maybe feel and maybe do over and over again uh, it's a bit like water going over a rock if the water goes on the same part of the rock over and over again it will wear a groove and it that in itself makes it easier for the water to go over that same part of the rock. And my guess is a similar thing happens with our nerves. So if we think the same thing over and over again, uh, it wears the pathway. It makes that nerve essentially stronger, whatever that means exactly, but it sort of wears a groove in that nerve pathway. And then as we've all experienced, uh, it's easier to think that same thought over and over and over again. I actually believe that I'm not the first person who's come to that conclusion. I think the quote bad guys are definitely uh, have came to that conclusion, which is why, going back to, you know, Heinrich Himmler or whatever that guy's name was. Why you just tell them over and over again, you get them to think the same thing over and over again. And it sort of grooves this pathway and then it becomes harder and harder to think anything else. So what is it about lying that messes up your memory? And the way I ended up thinking about this, uh, if I was somebody who wore a tie, which I don't, and let's say I had a blue tie on and somebody came up to me in the morning and said, what color is your tie? And maybe I don't even remember because I don't remember what. So I would look down and I would say, assuming I'm not colorblind, which I'm not, my tie is blue. All right. So then let's say I meet the guy again later on that day. And for some reason, he says, what color is your tie? Uh, Now, I have two choices. Uh, One, if I had said my tie is red because I was lying, and then I, I can't look down and see what color it is because I knew that I lied before. And I would have to try to remember that I said red and not orange or yellow or something. Um, on the other hand, if I had said, I looked down, and said, my tie's blue. And then he asked me later on in the afternoon, what color is your tie? I look down, I say, it's blue. I don't have to remember anything. And I think I've said before, when I decided to go into medicine, I decided to read every Sherlock Holmes uh Story or novel, whatever they're called, uh, just to get a, a sense of his thinking process. And he he said over and over again, "I never tried to remember anything that I didn't need to remember, and that way I could think better." So, if you like, many people we know, I don't want to mention any names. If you lie over and over and over again, then. Eventually, you have so much things to remember because you obviously have to remember what you said to this person and that person, and it's not true, so you have to remember. Uh, And I think Shakespeare talked about what a tangled web we, we weave. And I think that tangled web is reflected in the tangled web of the neurons, the nerves in your brain which is exactly what you see on autopsy findings of people with dementia and Alzheimer's. Now, I have no doubt that they're starving for good nutrients and they have EMF damage and they have toxic aluminum in their brains and all that. But I think if for me, the etiology, the bottom source of that is you weave this tangled web of lies and at the end of it, you can't remember your own we- own name or your wife's name. Now, I, the, the reason this is important is over the years uh, in doing medicine, I was very interested in this whole subject, especially with, uh, and I paid very careful attention to my patients, uh, quote, lying to me, or maybe a better word is exaggerating or under-exaggerating, underplaying, under-exaggerating, I don't think it's a word, but they would downplay the reality. In other words, what we're talking about is people who are out of touch with reality. And so they would say things like, Doc, my foot is killing me. now, They say, what do you think I should do? I say, well, cut your foot off, because if your foot is going to kill you and your choices are your foot is going to kill you or you live without a foot, I think you should choose living without a foot. It's up to you, of course, but that's what I would choose. Well, it's not really killing me. Well, then why did you say that? You see, because if you say that, meaning presumably that you think it, and you say that over and over again you sort of create a reality that your foot is killing you when no such thing is actually happening it actually hurts now if you say it hurts and then i you could say when does it hurt well first thing in the morning now some people say it hurts all day every day 24 hours a day so of course being the smart ass that I am, I would say, did you sleep last night? Yes. How many hours? Four hours. Hardly slept at all. Okay. During those four hours, did your foot hurt? Well, no, I was sleeping. So why'd you say it hurt 24 hours a day? Well, <laughs> that's an expression. Yeah, but it's a wrong expression. It means that you're fooling yourself you're living in a make-believe world, which I hope I don't have to tell anybody listening to this, that's not good for you. Because it creates a reality which doesn't exist and which you can't do anything about. You can't treat a make-believe virus or a make-believe disease because there's nothing to treat. And by the way, there is an expression of the most accurate book on biology ever written uh, call that says, and the word was made flesh. And I actually think that's an accurate statement. The words, which are a reflection of your thinking, which is the problem with dementia are made flesh and amazingly into this tangled web of lies uh, which then makes it so you can't remember your own name where does that come from from the choice to exaggerate or lie or downplay that's under exaggeration so you go to a guy with his got colon cancer and he's bleeding his bowels 55 year old guy I've seen this so how do you feel fine anything wrong no why are you here my wife said I should check out the bleeding in my bowels. <laughs> so, if you notice I don't really notice it. I mean, there you know, that's the other side of this. It's like he's there's no connection with reality. Now, obviously we could spend a lot of time thinking why do we people why why do people do that? And there's obviously good you know, psychodynamic reasons, like they exaggerate probably because people don't listen to them if they don't. If they say, you know, if, they're, if somebody stepped on their foot when they were a kid and they said, mom, my foot hurts, she said, go spit on it and put a bandaid on. They used to say it. They don't say that anymore. And so nothing happened. And maybe it was even broken. So you say, mom, my foot really hurts. Ah, you know, people's foot hurts. Don't worry about it. But it's, look, it's sticking out sideways. Yeah, a lot of times people's foot stick out sideways. Yeah, but mom, I think my foot's killing me. I think I need to go to get an x-ray. Oh, look, your foot is, it's weird. Uh, You know, (laughs) so now you go. So you learn not to go through those first three steps. Look, my foot is killing me. But then you can't distinguish between the foot that's falling off sideways versus a little bit of an injury. And then it becomes a habit and you start grooving that pathway and then you're off to the races. Now, you could say, why doesn't everybody get it since we all live in this tangled web of lies? That's essentially the environment that we live in. It's a tangled web of lies. Of course, uh, some people are more resistant for whatever reason, and I. there's obviously other factors, but I would say that is the first thing that somebody should think about whenever they're dealing with anything to do with dementia. And I actually have worked with patients where uh, they were worried about dementia or some member of their family, and I just t- told them how to do this and to just make a practice that In the next two weeks, everything they said and hopefully think either was accurate or don't say it. And there was times when people said, you know what, he's doing a little bit better. So I think we should look into this way of seeing the world. Should antibiotics ever be used? I mean, if somebody, you know, so... Here's the real answer to that. Um, The bacteria are not the source or the root cause of the problem. The bacteria are there to clean up dead and dying disease tissue. They're part of the healing process. But as I've said over and over again, they themselves are living beings. And they also have their own metabolism and they make their own waste products. And sometimes they can even uh, essentially by a sort of clogging up, they get too many, and then things start to actually not work and maybe even worse. So in that case, we're talking about bacterial meningitis. Unless you know of a very specific intervention that will work, because you've seen it yourself, which I have not seen for bacterial meningitis, then I would use an antibiotic or intravenously or whatever way I needed to to uh, essentially kill the bacteria, realizing that I have a lot of work left to go to clean up the debris, but that it sort of bought me time. Now, in my 30-some years of practicing, including the ER, this happened as far as i know once and it was a little boy with mastoiditis and i didn't like the situation and i said he needed to get it drained which was the main thing he had a pocket of pus behind his ear in the bone and they drained it put him on antibiotics and we lived to fight another day Okay, are proteolytic enzymes safe to supplement, and are they effective in reducing systemic inflammation? It a little bit depends on what proteolytic enzymes you're talking about, but generally, I would say yes. They are seem to be very safe, and they do reduce inflammation. It a little bit begs the question of, shouldn't we be making our own proteolytic enzymes, which we do? And if you take proteolytic enzymes, um, may that inhibit your own body from making the proteolytic enzymes you need? And besides that, it begs the question of why you have inflammation in the first place. But there is a role in medicine sometimes for giving people temporary relief um, so that you can sort of uh, assess and address whatever else really needs to be treated. And I would say that's the kind of thing that fits in that category, only with the caveat of until we figure out better ways of doing it, I am now 100% convinced, convinced there are better ways of doing it, even if I don't know or I don't know anybody knows what those better ways are. I know that they're out there. And for every disease, every type, type of inflammation, we shouldn't have to use those. But if it, it's not the worst thing in the world. So this is an interesting question. It's a long thing. Let me read it and I'll make a few comments. Hi, Dr. Cowan. I heard this lecture a few days ago and I wonder if you have any thoughts about this particular info shared by David Martin. So I believe this is the info now. And we don't know whether this is a correct rendition of what he was saying. So let's just remember that DNA in itself is a project of the, is a project of the eugenics project, 1953. We did not have DNA before 1953. We had chromosomes because that's how God made cells. He didn't make them with these little strands of double helixes. That's the shape of a molecule. That is not the architecture of life. And we've been had by being told since 1953 that it's a computer code that tells us how to replicate cells and how to do all that. No, it isn't. It's a computer simulation to try to fool us into believing that we are somehow a chemical formula that can be reduced into something that can be developed in a laboratory. We are not that. We are that dust from the ground that God took a breath of life and became a living soul. That's what we are. We are not a genetic code. The illusion that was created in 1953 was not an illusion about life. It was an illusion about the management of death. I would say that I more or less agree with that. And again, I don't know if that's an accurate rendition of what he said, but that sounds pretty close to what I've been saying for a while. Am I familiar with a study in PLOS called Virulence and Pathogenesis of SARS-CoV-2 Infection in Rhesus Macaques, a non-human primate model of COVID-19 progression? Zhang et al. sent my children the PDF of your book and my daughter who wouldn't let us come to our grandson's fourth birthday party this weekend without a COVID test, which we declined tried to poke holes in your argument and sent me a link to this study the way to deal with all these if you I mean there's no convincing anybody of anything but when you I did look at this study the first thing you go to the methods they say how did they find this SARS-CoV-2 they did a uh, they put it through Vero cells so already you know they're not working with SARS-CoV-2 at all. This is the same fraudulent virology that everybody does. There is no SARS-CoV-2. This was a yet another, 100% of them are are cultured in viral cells, which we know now is a fraud. When you think about this viral culture, think about these three things. One, we've disproven it, that uh, the whole Stefan's experiment, The viral culture breaks down without any virus being put in it. That's number one. Number two, if you believe that a viral culture uh, cultures this virus, then isn't an infection in your lungs also a viral culture? Isn't that what happens according to their own theory? A virus comes in, it, quote, infects your lung cells it reproduces, it makes thousands, millions of copies, and then it bursts out by and kills the cells. Isn't that exactly what they mean by a culture? And if it is, how come they can't find it in your lungs? And because there's no answer to that, the whole culturing thing is nonsense. And the, and the, the third thing is, okay, let's say that you have this, uh, lung fluid and you, you centrifuge it or, or filter it, it's not purified. These same people say we have thousands, millions of different kinds of viruses in our virome. Presumably, all of them will grow on culture, right? Not just SARS-CoV-2. There is no, there is no theory that says only SARS-CoV-2 or whatever pathogenic virus you're looking for that's the only one that can grow in a culture. So why don't these other viruses grow in the culture? Why can't you find thousands of different viruses growing in the Vero culture? Why is they why do they say we cultured it, we got SARS-CoV-2? That makes no sense. In other words, the culture is nonsense, so this study, they're not looking at any SARS-CoV-2 infection. They're doing, doing viroculture cells just like everybody else. So when some people say, since genetic diseases don't exist, what do you think causes Down syndrome? So you can refer back to uh, David Martin's comments. There may be something that has interfered with the amount or functioning of the chromosomes. Um, and that could cause problems, apparently does cause problems. And so that may be the etiology of Down syndrome, but I haven't looked into it enough. What I can tell you is there is no gene that causes disease, whether Down syndrome is not a gene, it's a chromosome problem. Uh, Whether that's true or not, I'm going to have to look into Is quantitative journal, uh, biology journal, peer reviewed? Yes. What are the peers saying? I have no idea. My girlfriend is newly pregnant. Luckily, I convinced her to do a home birth. However, she is insisting on getting ultrasounds and I'm worried about it. What are the effects that ultrasound can have on a fetus? There are many, many effects. There was, uh, I wrote a short paper about this years ago, but I haven't, um, it's been a while since I've looked at it, so I can't, uh, give you the exact details, but I would go, there was a, the best article ever written about this, I think it was a series of them were in Townsend Letter, which is a sort of alternative medical magazine, um, that they did a whole series, I believe two or maybe three articles on the negative effects of ultrasound. And in some ways they're worse than x-rays. And I would avoid ultrasounds in pregnancy almost at what any cost you can. And I'm sorry, I can't give you the actual reasons for that right off the top of my head, but you can find them in an article in the Townsend letter somewhere between five and 10 years ago, I think. Why are people sick? Because there's fear at best and social distancing and stuff in the air and injecting with poisons and horrible food and worry and social disintegration. And I could go on and on. That shouldn't be confusing at all. Could I elaborate a little about antivirals? What are they and what are they supposed to do and what are they really doing in the human body? Uh, so you have to understand where they get the concept of an antiviral. In order to, th- to understand that, you have to get understand the concept of a virus. You proved the existence of a virus and proved that it causes disease by putting unpurified stuff in a culture and the culture breaks down and they say that's the virus. If you put some substance or some anything in the culture and it doesn't break down as much or into as many particles, then that's called an antiviral. It's as simple as that. So you can put vitamin C in there and anything that nourishes the culture, nourishes the cells, keeps them from breaking down, keeps them more resistant to amphotericin toxicity or starvation or genomycin toxicity that will act as if it's an antiviral because less of these particles will be made. There's nothing antiviral about that. It should be called tissue or cell protective. That's what they mean by an antiviral. Do I believe the symptom of hypoxia or low oxygen is from the same cause? Same cause as what? I'm not sure what you mean, but it's basically either from messing with the oxygen in the air or messing with our mitochondrial function, which happens through all different kinds of poisoning and heavy metals and electromagnetic field toxicity, and probably emotional and psychological factors as well, then you can't use oxygen, and then you get hypoxic. So I don't, uh, it's a question about the light box and I, I'm just starting to use it. So I don't really have anything to say about that right now. What do you have to say about scoliosis for helping children with this diagnosis? Uh, Watch the interviews, the podcast with Tommy John, because you can probably forget mostly about the bony part because i mean you there's not much you can quote do about that but the bones follow the muscles and that follows the energetic patterns and if you get yourself strong uh, in the way that he's describing i my guess is you'll never have a problem with scoliosis and i think one more